Hello, welcome back. It's a great day to spend some time in the Book of Mormon. Of course, that's true every day, but I'm looking forward to the things that we get to talk about today in the Book of Mosiah. Today, basically for the first time, we get to sink our teeth into the large plates of Nephi. If you remember, Nephi was commanded to make two sets of records. One, the small plates, were for the more spiritual part, the ministry and the prophecies and revelations. The larger plates were the ones that were for the reigns of the kings and the wars and contentions of his people. The small plates comprised everything from 1 Nephi through Omni, and then everything else is large plates, with Words of Mormon as kind of connective tissue, so he lets you know what he's been doing. In fact, what has he been doing? He's been editing. And so we now shift from authors, Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, and so forth, into editors, namely Mormon who's taken all these records from people like King Benjamin, Mosiah, Alma the Younger, later Nephi's, and so on, and abridging them, including what he lamented was less than 1%, the 100th part, to try to help us understand the things of God through the history of his people. Now that's a significant shift. We're going from spiritual teachings sprinkled in with a little bit of history so that we understand the storyline as it's going through, to now primarily history with some spiritual lessons that Mormon is really hoping that we will be able to pull out. Mormon's goal really was no different than Nephi's. Remember Nephi back in 1 Nephi 6? The fullness of mine intent is to persuade all people to come unto the God of Israel and be saved. Mormon had the same goal in mind. He just had different material to work with. That's probably why he was so thrilled when he stumbled across the small plates and decided to include, include them at the end. It was pure spirituality. What his job was, was to take history and try to figure out what stories here what accounts, what experiences and events will be the greatest blessing to some future reader who's trying to navigate the spiritual life. So he was really hoping that we as readers would be able to see his stories and see past them to the lessons that he was trying to convey, the morals of the story at the end. If you're an expert or a fan in Aesop's fables, then this is kind of the mental shift that we need to make. Now there's real pros and cons to what Mormon is doing here. On the positive side, we seem to love stories. Jesus taught in parables. Uh, Latter-day Saints tend to know the first half of the New Testament far better than the second half. Why? Because the Gospels are stories about the life of Jesus. And the second half are epistles, doctrine that's being taught by the Apostle Paul. The same is basically true when it comes to the Doctrine and Covenants and the history of the church. We love the history. We love the stories. We were raised on those. And yet sometimes we shy away from the Doctrine and Covenants because it's just doctrine. It's just revelation. It's like, where's the storyline? My grandma, who loved the scriptures like nobody else, used to kind of wave her hand away at the Doctrine and Covenants and just say, ah, it's just a book of rules. It's a book of rules. Well, it is a book of doctrine. It is a book of covenants. And the storyline isn't there. You have to go to the history of the church or outside sources to see it. And sometimes that scares us off a little bit or perhaps bores us a little. We like stories. It, they keep us engaged. They capture our attention. But that positive can sometimes be a negative because what was the point of all those stories? It was to convey principles of the gospel that we can translate into our own lives. I had a Book of Mormon professor in my freshman year at BYU who always used to say, Building ships and breaking bows won't get you saved. It was his way of saying that the storyline in the scriptures is not what the scriptures are all about. Remember Nephi even said that? I'm not going to be particular to give a full account. Remember he 
passed the baton on to Jacob and laid down the law, only touch upon history lightly, but go heavy on the doctrine and principles of the gospel? That's what we're here to live. Don't imagine some angel on Judgment Day passing out scantrons and number two pencils so that we can bubble in our answers on, on scriptural trivia so that we can recreate storyline and narrative. It's have we lived the gospel? Have we come to know Jesus Christ? And so the two-edged sword of story in scripture is that on the one hand, we love it. We, it draws us in. It captures our attention. It's more memorable. But the danger of that is we, we kind of miss the forest for the trees. We see the story and think that we've got it when really the point of the story was to illustrate the principle that is embedded within it. The best definition of principle that I ever heard came from Elder Richard G. Scott, who defined principles as concentrated truths packaged for application. So within these stories are these concentrated truths that we can package and then move into our own lives and apply them to our situation. Nephi reminded us of that all the time. Right before he starts quoting Isaiah in 1 Nephi 20, he, said the ends, he says at the end of 1 Nephi 19, liken these scriptures to you so that they'll be for your profit and learning. When Jacob starts quoting Isaiah, he also says, liken these. When Nephi quotes Isaiah again in 2 Nephi, he prefaces it by saying, liken these. So the point of the history side of scripture is to give us something to liken to ourselves, some principle that we can mine out of the surrounding detail and then implement in our own lives. Mormon is banking on the fact that we'll get that, that we'll develop those skills and be able to find not just the story, but more importantly, the moral of the story that the Lord is trying to convey. The prophets simply realized that those principles sometimes needed to be couched in story so that people would be drawn in to try to find them for themselves. The stories are kind of the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, but it's the medicine that's going to save us. In fact, if you go back to First and Second Nephi, 55 incredible chapters, have you noticed that doctrine outweighs storyline? These were the small plates after all. It was meant to be spiritual. So I actually made a list. In the small plates, here are some of the stories. Lehi's family leaving Jerusalem, going back to get the brass plates, and then going back again to get Ishmael's family. Their travels in the wilderness, building a ship, crossing the ocean, arriving at the promised land, Lehi's final blessings, the Nephites separating from the Lamanites. That's about it, really. Now that sounds like a lot of history, but it's so far outweighed by the sermons in the small plates. Check out this list. Lehi's dream, Nephi's visions. Nephi begins to teach Isaiah. Lehi teaches his posterity. Joseph of Egypt, prophesying of Joseph of Palmyra. Nephi's psalm, Jacob's sermon on Isaiah. Nephi's seemingly endless Isaiah chapters. Nephi explaining Isaiah and giving us prophecies of the last days. Nephi teaching the doctrine of Christ and giving us his final testimony. Really, as memorable as the stories are from the small plates of Nephi, they're both outnumbered and outweighed by the scriptures that he reads and the doctrine that he teaches, the sermons that he recounts. That was his point. And it's Mormon's point too. He just didn't have all that material to work with. He had history. He was a historian of sorts. And yet more importantly, he was a prophet of God. And so he took what he had, the history of his people, 
boils it down to the most important 1% and then prays that we will have eyes to see the spiritual lessons that he was trying to teach us. So again, what are we supposed to do with all of this moving forward? We're supposed to pull out principles. Find those concentrated truths packaged for application. Ask yourself on every page, what's the moral of this story? And secondly, liken these things unto yourself so that they'll be for your profit and learning. Today's material, Mosiah 7 through 10, is such a great place to practice that. We haven't had to do much of that so far, but we're going to be doing a whole lot more of it from this moment on. So don't just skip rocks and go straight from King Benjamin to Abinadi. It's tempting to do that. Those two discourses are life-changing. But the material in between them, Mosiah 7 through 10, gives us the chance to practice the skills of pulling out principles and learning to liken. Let's do both of those today. Now to help us with that, let me just run over a little bit of history very, very briefly. The book of Mosiah is tricky as far as history is concerned. I'll admit that. The challenge is there's two different groups of people that live in two different places. There's three generations in both spots, but there's flashbacks in the story. And sometimes you're wondering which group are we talking about and who comes first? There's names that are repeated later in the book of Alma that are more famous stories, but they're and so you wonder, is this the same Ammon that I'm used to? Limhi and Lamoni, and his names are almost the same. Ah, the book of Mosiah can be tricky. It'll start to make sense, or at least get easier, once we get to chapter 25. Because the three generations have passed, and the two groups of people have re reunited. But to get there, there's going to be some trickiness that we're going to have to wade through. To try to simplify things as best as I can, just keep in mind two different areas with three generations passing. The two areas are the land of Nephi and the land of Zarahemla. If you remember at the end of the book of Omni, mentioned again in Words of Mormon, King Mosiah I was living in the land of Nephi, but was told of God to leave. And so he takes those that will follow and they go through the wilderness and discover this inhabited area. These are the people of Zarahemla and the two groups merge and he eventually becomes their king. That's where you see the book of Mosiah begin. King Benjamin's address is there at a temple in the land of Zarahemla. It's among these, this mixed multitude of Nephites and Mulekites, basically. The people of Nephi and the people of Zarahemla. But then in today's chapters, what you get is a group of people from Mosiah's people in the land of Zarahemla that want to go back to the land of Nephi and try to retake it to inherit the land of their forefathers. So now you have two different groups. And that first generation is King Mosiah I in Zarahemla and King Zenith in the land of Nephi. Fast forward a generation and you have King Benjamin in Zarahemla, and you have King Noah in the land of Nephi. And then fast forward another generation, and you have King Mosiah II, Benjamin's son, in Zarahemla, and King Limhi, Noah's son, in the land of Nephi. And it's Limhi that brings his people back. So does that make sense? Two different spots, land of Zarahemla, land of Nephi, three different generations. In Zarahemla, it's Mosiah I, Benjamin, Mosiah II, and in the land of Nephi, it's Zenith, Noah, and Limhi. 
if you can keep those three generations almost parallel in your mind, the dates don't have to perfectly work. But if you keep those parallel, there's some powerful foils that you'll be able to see. Comparing Mosiah the first to Zenith. Comparing Benjamin to Noah. That's the ultimate difference. And then comparing Mosiah the second to Limhi. So everyone starts together. They split, pass through three generations, and then reunite. And that might be the simplest way to see it. You have a group who stays and a group who strays. Can you start thinking of ways that this might be likenable or applicable in your own situation? The people in Zarahemla, Mosiah, Benjamin, Mosiah, are those who stay. They were led there by God and they live their lives and change their hearts and experience their conversions there. Meanwhile, this other group, Zenith, Noah, Limhi, were there, but they strayed. They left the fold and they go through some interesting experiences in that prodigal time period. What they have to teach us is incredibly relevant to our situation. All three kinds of missionary work are present in the Book of Mormon. Conversion, retention, and reactivation. We read conversion chapters in Alma 17 to 27, for example, when Ammon and his brethren are off teaching Lamanites, non-members, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can see retention chapters at the beginning of Mosiah and at the beginning of Alma, where King Benjamin is teaching essentially church members to deepen their faith and commitment to Christ in his address, or later, like in Alma chapter 5, where Alma is whipping the church into shape, or teaching even deeper doctrine to the people of Gideon in chapter 7. And then we also see what we could call reactivation chapters, where people who knew the truth or had been taught it wander away or stray from the fold and eventually find their way back. You see that in these chapters today. Much of Mosiah is along those lines. Whether it's the people of Zenith or the people of Limhi, whether later on it's the people of Ammonihah in the book of Alma, Conversion, retention, reactivation runs throughout much of Mosiah and Alma. And today's focal point seems to be on more reactivation efforts than the other two. You see a people stray during the days of Zenith, live very far from the standards of God in the days of Noah, and then wrestle to return to the fold in the days of Limhi. It's a beautiful story of coming full circle as people wander away but return to God. In fact, that's another story arc that we could take from these chapters. As Elder McConkie described, the pillars of eternity are creation, fall, and atonement. And that's the story arc of life. That's the plan of salvation. Picture creation as premortality, and then fall as earth life, and atonement as post-mortality in the presence of God. Think about the prodigal son. He's with his father. He wastes his inheritance in riotous living in this far country, but he returns to his father and that fatted calf and robe and ring. Think about ancient Israel, where they're in the promised land in the days of Abraham, but then they are down in Egypt in the days of Joseph and the aftermath, and then Moses brings them back to the promised land. This is the story arc that we see over and over in Scripture and in our own lives. Some people talk about the stages of faith that we go through. And this first stage where everything is black and white and seems seemingly perfect, that's the creation moment. And then we kind of go through this sense of ambiguity and confusion, question marks. It's not as simple as it seemed. That's the fall stage. 
So where a lot of people leave the church. But there is yet an atonement stage that is higher and holier than even the creation stage was that preceded it. And that's returning to faith. As Elder Brucey Hafen has recently written, that there is simplicity here and complexity here, but a higher simplicity beyond. We could even call it dogmatism to doubt to true faith in Jesus Christ. You'll see that story arc play itself out in the next three weeks in the Book of Mormon. Departure in the days of Zenith, wallowing in the fallen state in the days of Noah, and then this return to Zarahemla, this, uh, this atoning ascent in the days of Limhi. These are the stories that we'll be tackling. But please look for personal application here. See how relevant it is in your own life. If you're struggling in your faith and have felt that you've transitioned from creation to fall, this is your story. Or if you have loved ones who have, this is their story and a chance for you to see your role within it. If you're longing for that atoning ascent, it's all here. And so I pray that we'll be able to see ourselves and our own circumstances in the stories that we're about to study. Only then will these things be for our profit and learning. Now, one more thing to set the stage. This comes from a talk that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave back in 2003 in General Conference. It's called A Prayer for the Children. And in that talk, he did pray for the children, but it was a very specific kind of prayer. He said this, In offering such a prayer for the young, may I address a rather specific aspect of their safety? In this I speak carefully and lovingly to any of the adults of the church, parents or otherwise, who may be given to cynicism or skepticism, who in matters of whole-souled devotion always seem to hang back a little, who at the church's doctrinal campsite always like to pitch their tents out on the periphery of religious faith. To all such, whom we love and wish were more comfortable camping nearer to us, I say, please be aware that the full price to be paid for such a stance does not always come due in your lifetime. No, sadly, some elements of this can be a kind of profligate national debt, with payments coming out of your children's and grandchildren's pockets in far more expensive ways than you ever intended it to be. No, we can hardly expect the children to get to shore safely if the parents don't seem to know where to anchor their own boat. Later in the talk, Elder Holland describes an experience he and his wife had where they met a fine young man who came in contact with them after he had been roaming around through the occult and sorting through a variety of Eastern religions, all in an attempt to find religious faith. His father, he admitted, believed in nothing whatsoever, but his grandfather, he said, was actually a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But he didn't do much with it, the young man said. He was always pretty cynical about the Church. As Elder Holland put it, from a grandfather who is cynical to a son who is agnostic, to a grandson who is now looking desperately for what God had already once given his family. In a nutshell, and though the parallels aren't perfect, that's the story of the Book of Mosiah. Zenith was the grandfather here, who left the safety and security of Zarahemla because he wanted to do things his own way, followed by his son Noah, who was as far away from the faith of his fathers as he could get, only to be replaced by his son, Limhi, the grandson in this story, who tries desperately to return to the place where his grandfather had started two generations before. There's actually something really interesting here in immigration studies. It's become known as Hansen's Law, named after the 
mid-20th century historian that developed this concept. Hansen's law is basically summed up with this statement. What the son wishes to forget, the grandson wishes to remember. Professor Hansen, this historian of immigration, described three generations. The story for the first generation is immigration. You grew up in the old fatherland. That's your culture. That's your heritage. That's your language often, your tradition. And you've left all of that to come to a new place where you don't totally fit in. You're still more old world than new. Well, that passes on to the next generation, the second generation, who's frustrated by that fact, almost embarrassed by their parents and their weird accent, sometimes feeling trapped by the cultural heritage that they don't really want to inherit. If the story of the first generation is immigration, then the story of the second generation is assimilation. I want to be an American. I don't want to be a European. I don't want to be an African. I don't want to be an Asian. I want to be an American. And so they distance themselves as much as they can from the traditions, the background, the history of their forefathers. But then the third generation comes along and they start wondering about their cultural heritage. They didn't hear much of it from their parents who were trying to distance themselves from it. But they do see it in their grandparents and there's a certain desire to understand their roots, where they're coming from. So according to Hansen's law, we basically go from immigration to assimilation to some desire for reintegration, a return to the culture that was left behind. Generation one, it's about identity. Generation two, it is counter-identity. And generation three, it's cultural heritage and a rediscovery of who one really is. And in a way, that is Zenith Noah Limhi. So let's follow their story arc. Chapter 7, verse 1, the story begins. However, it begins in Zarahemla, though the bulk of the story will take place in the land of Nephi. And it begins in the third generation, before we start to flash back to the first. Chapter 7, verse 1, King Mosiah had had continual peace for the space of three years. Those were the same three years that King Benjamin survived after giving that final great discourse. But by this time, Mosiah was desirous to know concerning the people who went up to dwell in the land of Lehi-Nephi, or in the city of Lehi-Nephi. This was a group that had left two generations before. Mosiah II must have heard stories as a little boy that his grandpa Mosiah I probably told him. But for the intervening two generations, his people had heard nothing from them from the time they left the land of Zarahemla. Therefore, they wearied Mosiah with their teasings. Now, to make this story relevant to us, we need to get into the habit of looking for principles that can be likened to our own circumstances every chance that we get. So again, here in chapter 7, verse 1, when it comes to people who have strayed from the faith, are we desirous to know concerning them? Do they ever cross our minds? Do we sometimes sit back and wonder, whatever happened to that family? Or how is that person doing? I wonder where their life has taken them. If they ever miss the church or the gospel that once was such a part of their lives. Unfortunately, what it says later in the verse is too often true. His people had heard nothing from them from the time they left. Because the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is so all-encompassing, sometimes our life within the church of Jesus Christ can be all-consuming. It's not that we're trying to avoid non-members, and we're certainly not trying to shun or forget about former members or less active members. It's just we're so busy 
trying to magnify our callings, trying to serve in the church, trying to raise our children, primary activities and young men and young women activities and Relief Society and Elders Quorum, service projects and so on. I actually remember I was invited to come speak at the College of Social Work at the University of Utah to the students just to try to help them understand a little bit more about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a sociological standpoint. And there were a few people that were not members of the church or that were former members of the church in that group. And there was a certain sense of oh, frustration over what they perceived as the exclusivity, the isolationism of Latter-day Saints. And while I understood where they were coming from, I did try to explain a little bit about how busy it is to take care of each other in the church. I even let them know that you can be best friends with somebody in your ward. You see them every Sunday. You're serving together in callings. And then all of a sudden, the ward grows. There's a split. They live across the street, so they're in a different ward. And you hardly see them anymore. It's not that we're trying to sever relationships, but it's that we're trying to magnify our responsibilities for the relationships that are all around us. It's definitely a two-edged sword with some difficult disadvantages and some beautiful advantages. It's what the parish system, or as we describe it, wards and stakes really are all about. But what a tragedy when this is about former friends, or even worse, family members that we used to be close to, if we have heard nothing from them from the time that they left. Are we desirous to know concerning them? How are they doing? Independent of the church, to show that our relationship wasn't just dependent upon fellow membership in the faith. That seemed to be on the people's mind, because as it says at the end of verse 1, the people of Zarahemla wearied King Mosiah with their teasings. Now, I was an expert at teasing when I was a teenager. Ask my siblings. I'm sorry. But I don't think that's what that word means in this context. I don't think they're going, neener, neener, King Mosiah. You don't know about these, these people that left in your grandpa's reign. If you look up teasings in the dictionary... One of the definitions, the one that teenagers are also adept at, is to persuade, to acquiesce, especially by persistent small efforts. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're making fun of someone. It's just that we keep on trying because we want our parents to relent, that we want them to give in. Back in 1828, with the dictionary that Joseph Smith would have had available, to tease meant to vex with importunity, to just keep pleading, to be persistent in those efforts. And if there's one thing I know about reactivation work, it's that positive kind of teasing needs to take place. Hopefully not to the point of vexing someone with our importunity. That can be a problem, especially if the person is made to feel like some kind of a project. And so I just keep on asking more for my sake than for theirs. I've seen that done and it's never successful. However, to see the slow and steady sincerity that can come with the proper kind of teasing, the persistent small efforts that over time can soften a heart and break down a wall and allow someone to realize that we are sincere in our efforts and in our concern and love for them. I still remember some of the families I was assigned to home teach when I lived in Tennessee. I was new there. I didn't know these people. And they had been inactive for ages, it seemed. One particular man, he never allowed me to cross his threshold. I would stand on the porch and try to 
engage in conversation, try to get to know him. The first time, I honestly feared for my life. I wondered if he had a shotgun behind the door that he was about to pull out and tell me to get off of the premises. I felt like I was on a bad episode of the Dukes of Hazard or something. In fact, I joked with my wife. I stopped calling it home teaching and started calling it the Treat of the Month Club. Because each month I would go and drop off cookies one month, or brownies the next month, or Rice Krispie treats the next month. I just wanted to let them know, I, I'm here for you. One point he even confronted me and said, why do you keep coming back? Don't you have other people you can visit? And I said, oh, believe me, there are so many other people to visit. Inside and outside the church, everybody needs help. But I want you to know that I am here for you. It's not just that I have other people to visit. Do you have other people that you can go to? I just want to be among that number. I want you to know that I'm here for you. Whatever you need, and whether that's the gospel or whether that's cookies, I'm here for you. I still remember the first time that I drove by his house when he was out mowing his lawn and I pulled over to say hello and we actually had a friendly conversation. This was months and months and months into Treat of the Month Club. Even better was the month that I missed and that he texted me to see how I was doing. He never returned to church, at least not during the years that I was there. But based on the friendship that began to form between us, I do believe that my teasings had a positive effect. Slow and steady efforts to help people know that we're sincere. So in this case, Mosiah responds to those te teasings. And in verse 2, he grants that 16 men go to find out about them. Now notice who he sends. These are the type of people that are best involved in this work. They were strong. To seek after the sheep who stray, we need to be strong spiritually and strong socially, really, to be able to strike up conversations with people who might be more prone to give us a stiff arm. And notice what they're sent to do. They weren't put under orders to forcibly bring these people back to Zarahemla. They were sent simply to inquire concerning their brethren. People they've never met, but how are they referred to? Their brethren. Inquire concerning them. Simply get to know them. Find out their story. Not just why they left the church, but perhaps why they were ever a part of it to begin with. And just as importantly, things that have nothing to do with church at all. To inquire concerning their brethren. So they go. In verse 3, they're led by Ammon. This is not Ammon in the book of Alma who is famous for chopping off arms. That was Ammon the converter. This is Ammon the reactivator, if we want to give them those titles. But he was a strong and mighty man. And that's what it's going to take. In verse 4, they knew not the course they should travel. Isn't that how you feel when you try to reach out to the less active? So often I am completely clueless as to what I'm supposed to do. How can I reach them? This group wandered many days in the wilderness, 40 days to be exact. Now throughout scripture, 40 days often comes up as a symbol, whether it was literal or figurative, 40 days is often used as a symbol of purification. The rains fell for 40 days and 40 nights in the flood to cleanse the earth, to purify it. The ancient Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years to purify themselves before they were able to enter the promised land. So whether this 40 day is literal or perhaps in our case symbolic, am I spending my time as I'm not sure where to travel, what to do to help people return? Am I purifying myself? And not just in terms of worthiness, but am I purifying my motives? Am I only reaching out for these people because I've been assigned to? 
I remember befriending a less active once and pleading with my elders quorum president, do not assign me as his home teacher. That will change everything as far as his perception, thinking, oh, now I know why you're befriending me. You have to. This is the assignment. Are we purifying our motives? Are we inquiring after our brethren? Are we seeking divine guidance as we wander in the wilderness, unsure of how to reach the people that we're concerned about? They eventually find the people that they're looking for. But in verse 7, they are immediately taken and bound and committed to prison. That does sound pretty close to what it feels like to work with a less active that does not want to be reactivated. However, after two days in prison, notice what it comes of their conversation. In verse 9, King Limhi, the son of Noah, the son of Zenith, who came out from the land of Zarahemla to inherit this land, begins to speak to Ammon. And he says to him in verse 10, I desire to know the cause whereby ye were so bold as to come near the walls of the city. When I was out there with my guards. Boldness tends to breed curiosity. Now again, be bold but not overbearing, we learn later in the Book of Mormon. But if we're bold enough to go knock on a door, to drop off a plate of cookies, to reach out to someone, to text someone you haven't talked to in so long that you're wondering if the number is still correct, to instant message somebody on social media that may be a friend in Facebook, but can hardly be considered much of a friend after so much time has passed without involving them in your life. It has to start somewhere. And if we'll just be bold enough to begin to initiate a conversation, often that boldness will spark a desire in the other person to know why we are doing what we're doing. So as King Limhi explains in verse 11, that's why I wanted to inquire of you. Notice the word repetition. The whole reason that Ammon came in the first place was to inquire of his brethren. And now this brother is inquiring of him in return. Mutual interest. I want to hear your story. Will you listen to mine? When Ammon does speak to him, bowing himself before him, grateful that he was still alive. Again, I felt like that a few times when I'm out visiting less actives. He says in verse 13, If ye had known me, ye would not have suffered that I should have worn these bands. That is such a beautiful insight. If you had known me, you would have thrown your door wide open and let me come. If we know each other, the walls come down. The friction is lessened. No imprisonment, no need to bow and beg for one's life. As he explains in 13, I am Ammon. I know that doesn't mean anything to you. But I'm a descendant of Zarahemla. I came up out of the land of Zarahemla to inquire concerning our brethren whom Zenith brought up out of that land. You see how beautiful this is? Limhi mentions his own family tree, including Grandpa Zenith. And Ammon perks up and says, I came to find what happened to the descendants of your grandpa. There's something just beautifully fitting here. You're exactly the person I was looking for. And I am exactly the person that you need. When that sense of shared recognition of real brotherhood or sisterhood can come, amazing things will occur in our efforts to help people return to the fold. Limhi thus responds in kind in verse 14. He was exceedingly glad and says, Now I know of a surety that my brethren... Notice that's what he calls them. I had never met anyone from Zarahemla. It's a place that my grandpa told me about. But I still consider them my brethren. 
I know that they're yet alive. I will rejoice tomorrow. I'll cause my people to rejoice too. I wonder how many less actives out there that we know nothing about because we've never inquired of them still consider the church their brethren, sisters that are unknown to them, but sisters still. Honestly, I wonder how many people... It, it, it reminds me of seeing area books in the mission field and realizing that missionary work has been done in this area for so long. It's not just a bunch of people that have no exposure to the church that I'm tracking into. How many of them have had prior experiences with missionaries, but just never decided to join the church? Similarly, how many less actives are in the world that still wonder about church members, old friends that they had in the faith, people that they served with in their callings? Can we still consider one another brothers and sisters? In verse 15, he begins to explain a little bit of his situation. We're in bondage to the Lamanites. We're taxed with a grievous tax to be born. So his desire in verse 15, Behold, our brethren will deliver us out of our bondage or out of the hands of the Lamanites. And we will be their slaves. Hey, it's better to be slaves to the Nephites than pay tribute to the king of the Lamanites. Now we're going to see this again later in the book of Alma when the anti-Nephi-Lehites convert and move in with the Nephites. But here we start to see this mentality that the only hope for us is slavery. I've left. If I hope to return, I'll always be on some secondary status. Now, better that than where I am at right now. But what can you and I do to reassure them that there's no second-class status because someone was less active and now they've returned to the faith? There's no slavery here. You're home. Isn't that kind of what the older brother of the prodigal son was hoping for his little brother? If you're going to, in fact, what the little brother was expecting for himself, he never thought he'd come home and be his father's son again. He intended fully to come home and be one of his father's servants. But he underestimated his father. There's no slavery here. There's no servitude. There's no second class status. Come. Come home. According to verse 16, evidently this whole beautiful reunion of sorts takes place and Ammon is still in chains. So King Limhi says, take these chains off. No more bind him or his brethren. In fact, go back and get the, uh, the rest of your mission companions that are out uh, at the hill outside the city so you can eat and drink and rest yourself. As it says at the end of 16, they had suffered many things, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Are we willing to go through that? We were as missionaries with the conversion goal. Can we do the same as members with the reactivation goal? As Elder Holland has reassured full-time missionaries, it's hard because salvation cannot come as a cheap experience. It was never easy for Jesus. Is it worth suffering many things? It is, because the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. So in 17, King Limhi sends a proclamation to his people, tells them to gather to the temple. Notice there's still one in the land of Nephi, and it's still important to these people. I remember once in Tennessee, my wife going to a sister that she was assigned to visit teach, who hadn't been to church in ages, completely inactive from church. She walked into the house, and there was a well-worn ensign magazine on the coffee table, and there was a picture of the temple on the wall. And my wife was completely confused. As she got to know this sister, she realized she's only inactive in the church. She's not inactive in the gospel. It still means so much to her. The temple is still 
the gathering place for these people. Even though, if we're talking spiritually, no one is in a position to enter and do what temples are usually used for. Still, in verse 18, they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. King Limhi says to his people, Lift up your heads and be comforted, for the time is at hand, or at least it's not far distant. We'll no longer be in subjection to our enemies. Can we give less actives hope that they can return, that things will be better for them, that the time is at hand, it's not far distant, that they can be back in full fellowship and faith? That being said, King Limhi was wise to say at the end of verse 18, Yet I trust there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made. There may still be difficult days ahead. Repentance is an upward climb. To break bad habits developed in the meantime, or to regain some of the momentum that was lost, that may yet require an effectual struggle. But the time is not far distant that life will be good again. So lift up your heads and rejoice, he says in verse 19. And most importantly, put your trust in God. In that God who was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Walked them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Fed them with manna so they wouldn't perish in the wilderness. See, we're not the only ones who've strayed. We're not the only ones that left the promised land and went down to Egypt and found their way back to Israel with the help of their God. The same can be true of us, he says. You just have to trust him. This is so beautiful to me that these are the words of Limhi, not the words of Ammon. Ammon's probably sitting back aghast saying, this is exactly the sermon that I would have delivered. But it's coming from their king. So often they remember more than we think they do. Their faith is stronger than we give them credit for. Their desires are deeper and more righteous than what we might have assumed. They want to put their trust in God because they still know that God and want to fully return to him. Verse 20, one more example to reassure them. The same God who brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem, who's kept and preserved his people even until now. He's always been there to help his people. It's our fault that things have gone south for us. It is because of our iniquities and abominations, he admits, that God has brought us into bondage. Now in verse 21, he begins to tell the story. You're all witnesses this day. This isn't news to you. It is news to Ammon. So let me just reiterate for you and reveal to him that Zenith, Limahai's grandpa, who was made king over this people, he being overzealous to inherit the land of his fathers. That's the first thing we come to know about Zenith, that he was overzealous. He wanted something and he wanted it so badly that perhaps against better judgment, he put himself into harm's way. The king of the Lamanites deceived him. Verse 21, he's described as being cunning and crafty. And so he forges this treaty with King Zenith, clears out part of his territory and says, yeah, be my guest. You're welcome here. All for the purpose, verse 22, of bringing this people into subjection or into bondage. And that's exactly what happened to the point that they're now giving half of all that they can grow as tax to the king of the Lamanites. They're subsidizing their own bondage. They're paying for their own captivity. Is not this grievous to be borne, he says in verse 23? Are not these our afflictions great? Have we not great reason to mourn? And yet, as he admits at the end of 24, it's our fault. 
This is all because of iniquity. Now let me say something briefly about Zenith. We'll return to him in a moment. But that detail that he was overzealous. So often we feel that people who have left the church, it's because they are undercommitted. And while that's typically the case, this opposite extreme can also lead in that same direction. I work with people that are struggling in their faith all the time. And the vast majority of them struggle because they believe too little. But occasionally I'll meet someone who's struggling because they believe too much. Instead of having this balanced, steady faith, there's an overzealousness. There's a desire to get ahead of the brethren, to outpace the prophets. There's a certain pridefulness feeling that we're the elect of the elect and don't want to have to wait around for these other church members. And so I'll go forge my own way, become a prophet to myself. Yes, beware of being undercommitted, but also be aware of being overzealous because so often it opens you up to being deceived with promises that really are too good to be true. Now, those are not the only possibilities here. I'm amazed that in verse 25, 26, 27, 28, we see described what I would consider the three main causes of inactivity. I got a crash course in inactivity as a missionary 25 years ago. I was called to Puerto Rico, and when I got there, the members of the church were still reeling and recovering from an experience that they'd had one year before. At that time, Elder L. Tom Perry at the Quorum of the Twelve had been on assignment to go to Puerto Rico. There had been four stakes of the church there, but he was sent to take one of the stakes and dissolve it, to get rid of it and create mission districts instead in its place. That's a step in the wrong direction. Usually it's branches that want to become wards. It's mission districts that become stakes. But Elder Perry was sent to move it backward. Well, he toured the island, interviewed church leaders and members, and ended up calling President Hinckley and saying, you know, President, I'm here in Puerto Rico. I'm supposed to dissolve one of the four stakes. I really feel, based on what I've seen here, that we need to dissolve all four of them and start the whole island over again with eight mission districts. Am I allowed to do that? President Hinckley responded, well, you're an apostle. Do whatever you feel the Lord wants you to do. And so basically overnight, the church went from under the direction of four local stake presidents to under the direction of one overwhelmed mission president that was now responsible for not only all the missionaries on the island, but all the members as well. Inactivity had become such a challenge there that the church was stagnating. It wasn't moving forward the way it needed to. By the way, that was a truly inspired thing to do on Elder Perry's part. Because whereas there had been four stakes that were going nowhere, that removal was a wake-up call to the members. Rather than taking church organization for granted, four stagnant stakes became eight mission districts, all of which were re-enthused to move forward. And now there are more stakes in Puerto Rico than there were before that change. But the change occurred primarily because of inactivity on a massive scale. And I remember my mission president saying, there are three main reasons people fall away from the church. Number one, he said, is sin. They're no longer living the gospel, and so they want to distance themselves from that feeling of guilt. By the way, please don't ever jump to that conclusion. Again, if you haven't seen them since the time they left, you better be sure to inquire of your brethren before you automatically write them off saying, well, there's probably some kind of sin that they're trying to hide. 
That is one reason people leave, but that is not the only reason. And please don't assume that it is in their case. The second reason that my mission president mentioned is because of offense. Somebody at church said something. I'm never going as long as that person's still the bishop or when that person's still there. And third, some people leave because of a lack of faith or testimony. There's some doctrinal issue or historical issue that they're struggling with or that they cannot reconcile, and so they leave. In this internet age, by the way, this information age, which doubles as the misinformation age, that third group is growing fastest. Now, there may be other reasons that fall outside those three, but if we see these as three significant reasons why people leave the church, I'm amazed that all three are found in this passage. Verse 25, King Limhi says, If this people had not fallen into transgression, the Lord would not have suffered that this great evil should come upon them. That's that first one, sin. He continues, But behold, they would not hearken unto his words, but there arose contentions among them, even so much that they did shed blood among themselves. These contentions are a good indicator of the offenses that can sometimes happen among fellow church members. Hopefully it doesn't lead to bloodshed, unless maybe it's church basketball. But the friction that can exist between church members often leads one or the other, or even both, to separate themselves from the faith. And then in 26, A prophet of the Lord have they slain, yea, a chosen man of God. Now in 26, He speaks of that prophet warning them of wickedness and abomination. That's back to the sin element. But in 27, it's the doctrinal element. That man of God that they slew said certain things, taught certain things, and he was killed for it. So think about these three that are described in these verses. We fell into transgression. We allowed contention to rise among us. We've slain a prophet because of certain doctrines that he taught us. There is sin, there is offense, and there is doctrine or testimony issues. You can describe them as the spiritual, the social, and the intellectual or doctrinal component of our membership. And any one of those three can waver or wither away. By the way, as I've pondered these three, I remember at one point this insight came that these three elements of inactivity coincide perfectly with the three great cardinal Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity. If they're struggling with sin, then they're simply having a crisis of hope, hope for forgiveness. As Mormon says, for what is it that we shall hope for? We shall have hope through the atonement of Christ. And if I'm allowing my sin to keep me from coming unto Christ, It's because I don't have enough hope in him that I can be clean again. If I'm struggling with offense, that friction and contention between members, I'm simply having a crisis of charity. For charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity forgives one another. Charity dissolves dispute and eliminates contention. Charity is the pure love of Christ, even towards people who don't seem very deserving of it. And then thirdly, If we're having doctrinal or historical or intellectual concerns with the church, that's simply a crisis of faith. And that faith can be fortified. We have no problem admitting that our physical health has its ups and downs. We're finally getting to a point where we're getting closer to admitting that our mental health has its ups and downs. Are we 
get to the point where we can admit that our spiritual health has its ups and downs too? That we all on occasion struggle with crises of faith or hope or charity? Our issues may tend to be more in one than in others, but to see that these are things that we all go through and they're things that we can all recover from, that we can strengthen our faith, that we can increase our hope, that we can deepen our charity. And as a result, we can come home. By the way, in verse 27, what they remember from Abinadi's address, which we'll study in depth next week, is pretty impressive. It is amazing how much someone who has been far away from the church for a long time can still remember about truths that they were once taught. These nuggets of truth that are lodged away somewhere in memory. Elder Boyd K. Packer once taught a beautiful principle in this. He said when he was a soldier in World War II and spent some time in Japan after the end of the war, he picked up a few words and phrases in Japanese. And then he came back to Brigham City where he grew up and not a whole lot of opportunity to use those vocabulary words. Decades passed. He was then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve and he was on assignment in Japan and all of a sudden found himself remembering words and phrases that he'd learned decades before and never used in the interim. It struck him that some things just come back quickly and he used our memory of gospel truths as an example of that, specifically speaking of those that have strayed from the fold. I bet you know more than you think and remember more than you realize. It doesn't take a lifetime to get back up to speed. You remember, and so much of that will just come rushing back as soon as you give it a chance to. Limhi reminds them of a few other things but then closes this chapter in verse 33 by saying, if you will turn to the Lord, which implies that they had turned away from him, but if we'll turn back, if we'll turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, perhaps previous attempts have been half-hearted, but this time if our purpose can be full and put our trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind, Again, no partial efforts this time. With all diligence of mind, if ye do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure. That's admitting that that effectual struggle may still be necessary. That it will happen in God's time and God's way. He will deliver you out of bondage. Do we have faith in those promises for ourselves if we're the ones contemplating a return? Do we have faith in those promises for others? If we are willing to go through the effort, the labor, the hunger, thirst, fatigue, to go and inquire after them, become brethren once again, reassure them that there is no slavery back at home, and then help them come, turn once again to the God that deserves their trust.